The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. The English Reformation is, uh, is really a fascinating study of the forces that were at work in Europe uh, at that time. The English Reformation really started out more as a political reformation than anything else, not a theological one, similar to what was going on in Switzerland until Zwingli began working there. What happened was that uh, the King of England, you know who that was? Who was the King of England during the Reformation? Henry VIII, that's right, Henry VIII. And he had how many wives? Well, he had six wives, that's right. Um, the problem was that the first wife just didn't seem to be able to give him a son. Now, it turned out to be his fault because he was sexually immoral. He had some sexually transmitted disease, and as a result, he just could not uh, father a child um, the way that he would had he not had that situation. Now, he actually fathered three children, um, but it was a real struggle. And so he blamed the woman, uh, very common, and so he wanted to get a divorce from his wife. Uh, his wife was Catherine of Aragon, and she was Spanish. Um, and a lot of these political, this was a political marriage. Anyway, the long and, long and short of it is he needed to get a divorce in order that the heir would be legal, the legal heir. Now, he had a daughter by um, Catherine, and her name was Mary. And it's very interesting how each of Henry's three children, all of whom rose to the English throne, had various religious convictions based on who their mother was, in my opinion. Okay? Um, Catherine uh, was Catholic, of course, coming from Spain. So was Henry before he broke with the, uh, with the Catholic Church. Uh, when it became clear that Catherine was not going to give him a male heir, he sought to have really not a divorce but an annulment. Basically, she had been his brother's wife and he tried to get out through a technicality, kind of a loophole type thing. Well, the Pope would have none of it and said basically, long story short, she's your wife, deal with it. So he basically says, I'm the king of England, deal with it, you know, and, and basically he, he personally takes over the church in England. I mean, just with his authority, he was a tremendously powerful leader. He just took over the church. And so it just went overnight from being Catholic to being Anglican, the Church of England. And anybody who didn't like it basically got executed. All right. And that's just the way that was. And uh, Sir Thomas More, for example, uh, was opposed to, um, what, the king did, and he was executed. A number of Catholics, uh, uh, they consider them martyrs, were martyred as a result of that, Sir Thomas More being one of them. So anyway, uh, he changes his wife. He marries Anne Boleyn, and Anne gives him uh, another daughter, um, Elizabeth. All right? And so, uh, again, um, uh, he's not getting a son. It's his fault, but he's not getting a son, and he catches her messing around, and uh, it's all right, I guess, for the man, but it certainly wasn't all right for the woman, and he had her executed, so her head was cut off. And then um, he had another wife, I think her name was Catherine, uh, Catherine Parr, and she gave him his only son, Edward. Jane Seymour, that's right. Yeah, her only, I'm doing this from memory, I haven't reviewed this in a while. She gave him his only son, Edward, and he was a Protestant, all right? He, of course, became immediately heir to the throne, but he was sickly, he had physical problems, and he didn't last long. So after Henry VIII died, basically the problem was that Henry VIII was Catholic at heart. I mean, to his core, he was Catholic. He did not want a reformation in England. He opposed Lutheranism. He hated Lutheranism. He did not want the Bible translated into English. 
when William Tyndale tried to translate or did translate the Bible into English and published the Bible in English, he had him executed. He was burned at the stake, William Tyndale. The King James Bible, 80% of it was from Tyndale. About 80% was the writing of Tyndale, an amazing translator, remarkable uh, man. And his dying words as he was there burned at the stake were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. It was his final prayer, praying for Henry. Well, I don't think that his eyes ever were opened. He basically was Catholic more or less to the day he died, even though he was the head of the Church of England. Basically, he became the Pope of his own church. That's about what happened. And it's been that way ever since. The head of the Anglican Church now, supposedly, is Queen Elizabeth. And when she dies, you know who the next head of the Church of England is going to be? Prince Charles. Yeah. Who has, in my opinion, not a strong affinity for Christianity. But uh, at any rate, he's going to be the head of the Church of England. That's kind of the way that is. Again, no separation of church and state. Well, anyway, Henry dies and his son, Edward, um, uh, takes over and he is a Protestant. And it's a, there's a flourishing at that point of Protestant doctrine, Protestant belief. But he, as I said, is sickly and does not last long. There's a strong relationship at that point between Edward and John Calvin, for example. He wrote to... Uh, King Edward a couple of times. I mean, there was some training going on. John Knox, for example, uh, came down to be trained when he was exiled after Edward died. He had to leave England when Mary became queen. And so he was trained by uh, by Calvin. Now, we're going to develop all this when we talk about Puritanism because Pur- the Puritans were Calvinists. Um, but at any rate, there was a strong connection. Edward didn't last long. He was sickly. He died. And Mary took over. Now, what, where's Mary? Mary's loyalty? Well, who's her mother? Catherine. And she considers that original marriage to be genuine and that she should have been the heir to the throne. So her heart is all Catholic. And so she tries to and seeks and actually successfully restores Catholicism to England for a period of time. She's known as what? What's her common name? Bloody Mary. That's right, because she killed a lot of Protestants during that time. But frankly, they were all kind of bloody. You know, All these leaders sought to execute uh, people that they disagreed with. Uh, well, eventually she died, and uh, then Elizabeth uh, took over, and she was um, uh, queen until uh, she died. Long, long reign. She was a, a virgin, so to speak. She never married. That's where we get um, the state Virginia was named after her. And she kind of chose a middle route between Catholicism and pure Protestantism. The middle route, the Via Media, it was called. And so you have Anglicanism at that point. It's a lot like Catholicism, but... There's some differences too. And it's in that context that Puritanism rose up. During the time of Elizabeth and the Elizabethan Compromise, the Puritans rose up and said, this is a half-baked Reformation. We need a real Reformation. So the Puritans came along. That's where they came from. Now, in a, in a few weeks or whenever we get a chance to do it, we're going to go into greater detail about the Puritans and the English Reformation. Um, we have to understand the English Reformation, uh, I think, in order to understand American Christianity, because a lot there's a strong connection between what happened in England and the roots of American Christianity. But that's all I'm going to say right now on the English Reformation. I just wanted to cover some things so that we'd have at least some information on that. Thank you. As I said, totally unsatisfactory, but we'll get back to it when we look at the Puritans. Do you all have sheets on tonight's study? Should be enough out there. Tonight we're going to look at post-Reformation Europe. What happened after the reform of Martin Luther? Uh, in Europe, and we're going to look at nations, reason, and revival. Okay, the rise of, of nationalism uh, and the so-called age of reason, and then revivals and revivalism, 15, about 1545 uh, to around the turn of the 20th century. 
So what I've done is I've given you kind of a, a class overview of everything we're going to try to cover tonight. So at least you'll hear it once. Whether we actually get through the whole thing or not, I don't know. But we're going to just take about three minutes and fly over this whole thing. I've broken it into four major sections. First is post-Reformation Europe, theological and political conflict. The second is the rise of unbelief and liberalism. Uh, the third is revival movements. And the fourth is the birth and growth of modern missions. Those are, in my opinion, the four major stories of the period of European church history that we're looking at. Let's look at the first, post-Reformation Europe. We have theological and political conflict. We're going to talk about the Roman Catholic counter-Reformation. How did the Catholic Church respond to Luther? What did they do? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about nationalism and uh, religious wars, Protestant versus Catholic wars, theological developments within that, and then ultimately the rise of denominationalism, the idea of denominations, various types of or brands, you could almost call it, of Christianity, and the idea of options and choices. This is the kind of final death of the idea of a state religion uh, and separation of church and state came in, and you could kind of be what you wanted to be. And that's where we end up, that whole uh, development in Europe. Second is the rise of unbelief and liberalism. We're going to talk about the Enlightenment briefly, uh, an age of advancement, a little bit about scientific achievements, and a lot about human philosophy. Uh, we're going to talk about a development within that of deism and also atheism. From that also liberalism. Where did liberalism come from? And then Darwinism. We're not talking about Darwinism a lot tonight, but it factors in to some degree. Uh, thirdly, we're going to talk about revival movements. Revival movements. German pietism. English Methodism. Uh, and then the idea of revivalism. Premillennialism we'll touch on a little bit. And then the social effects of revival. The anti-slavery crusade, I mean in England specifically. We're in Europe. Okay, we're not talking about in America. And then the birth and growth of modern missions. Just two. There's a lot we could talk about, but the Moravians and William Carey. All right? Charles Darwin. Yes, Charles Darwin and Darwinism, absolutely. So, any questions? Do you think we can do it? I don't, so I don't know. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, we'll do the best we can. All right, let's start with the Counter-Reformation. The Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation. This is basically how the Catholic Church responded to Luther and to Lutheranism. They didn't really get going in their response until 1540 or so, in the 1540s. There were three basic responses. The Catholic Church had three basic responses. The Council of Trent, the Jesuits, and the Inquisition. These are the three things the Catholic Church did to respond to the Reformation. Inter interestingly, all three of them have strong ties to Spain. Spain was, in effect, the fountain of response to Lutheranism. Uh, the Council of Trent, for example, was called by Charles V, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, was grandson of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, king and queen of Spain. Have you ever heard of Ferdinand and Isabella? In what context have you heard of Ferdinand and Isabella? Columbus, that's right. But also, see, Ferdinand and Isabella were most known for driving the Moors out of Spain. Their union gave the, them enough military strength to get rid of Islam forever from Spain. And so they drove the Moors out for good, and they were very staunch Catholics. It was during their time that the Inquisition first started in Spain. It eventually spread into Italy and other places as a form of response um, to 
Lutheranism or to the Reformation. Uh, also, the Jesuits, the uh, originator of the Jesuits, Ignatius of Loyola, was Spanish. So all three of these wings uh, really are coming up out of Spain. It was Spain that responded more than anything to the Reformation. Let's look first at the Council of Trent. Now, the Council of Trent, 1545 to 1563, a council is just a group of bishops or archbishops, cardinals that get together and discuss theological things. So they had to discuss Lutheranism and the issues of reform. They met from 1545 to 1563. So that's a long time, 18 years they met. took them a while to get together, but once they did, they organized Catholic orthodoxy. And from pretty, pretty much from 1563 on into Vatican II, Council of Trent was Catholicism. Frankly, in many ways, it still is. This is kind of what it means to be a Catholic. And I know, basically, coming from Catholic background myself, I was raised Roman Catholic in the church for almost 20 years. People have asked me before, they say, is it, is it possible to be a Christian in the Catholic church? I'll say, of course it is. You can be a born-again Christian in the Catholic church. I just don't think you can be a true Catholic. And I think the, the, the issue is that most Catholic Christians don't know what the Catholic church really teaches about a variety of doctrines. Uh, and you can just simply ask, you talk about these dialogues, you get Catholics and evangelicals together, just sit down and say, is the Council of Trent still the official position of the church on justification? And if they say yes, I don't know what there is to talk about. There really isn't anything. They missed it when it came to justification and all the other issues that they addressed, significant issues. Now, what kind of things did they talk about? Well, let's talk about justification. First thing that they did, by the way, is they dealt with the moral issues of the church. Everybody knew that the Catholic Church had moral problems. All right, the priests were, were you know, fathering children out of wedlock. They were receiving money uh, illicitly. There were all kinds of problems. And so they sought to clean that up, and they did. They worked on that, and they cleaned that up. But remember what Luther said. Luther said, others address the life. I address the doctrine. He was attacking the doctrine. All right, well, let's get to the doctrine. What was Luther's key doctrinal insight? What was the one thing he's known for? Yeah, justification by faith alone, apart from what? Works. All right, well, this is what they did. They had 16 chapters on justification. In chapters 1 through 9, they basically said man is unable to save himself but must cooperate with grace by his free will and prove it by baptism and good works. Justification results not only in forgiveness of all sins, but also in a sanctification renewal of the whole man. In other words, it's not a cloak of righteousness that Christ puts on you spiritually, externally, but he actually makes you righteous. You're a righteous person in your everyday life. And basically, in my opinion, the way they did it is they took sanctification, which you all as Christians are going through every day, growing to be more like Jesus, right? Putting sins to death trying to walk with God, doing good works, etc. That's the process of sanctification. What they did is, in effect, looked at sanctification first and then put justification at the end of a sanctified life. You see what I'm talking about? So basically, you can't know whether you're justified until the end of your life. You see what I'm talking about? You can't know. There's no way you can know. You just need to be a holy, a righteous person, lead a good life, be sanctified, and then at the end... And they literally use this language, as a reward, you are justified. Well, that's false doctrine. That's not what the Bible teaches. I'll, I'll, even, I'll even quote what they said. 
And for this cause, life eternal is to be proposed to those working well unto the end and hoping in God, both as a grace mercifully promised to the sons of God through Jesus Christ and as a reward, which is according to the promise of God himself to be faithfully rendered to their good works and merits. They missed it. They didn't, they didn't miss Luther. They missed Paul. Romans, you know, they got it wrong on justification. And so that's why I say what I say. Can you be truly Catholic, you know, and be Christian? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if you can believe this kind of false doctrine and be truly Christian, that we are truly justified in the end by our works. Salvation is therefore given to the justified as a reward. <clears throat> so at any rate, they, they work through these various things. They said also that the sacraments were a benefit to you whether you believed or not, and whether the priest who administered them to you believed or not. It had nothing to do with faith. It just had to do with the sacrament. The sacrament was powerful, like a potent spiritual pill that you could take, and whether you believed it or not, it would have an impact on you. It would help you. Well, I'm sorry. I think that apart from faith, nothing helps us. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But that's what they taught. Uh, they also emphasized that the Mass their celebration of the Lord's Supper is actually, truly, a sacrifice offered to God every time. And so what that means is with every Mass, the priest is offering Jesus back up to God for the sins of the people that he's doing the Mass for. He's renewing and reviving the sacrifice again and again and again. Yes, spiritually, in effect, yeah. The, the priest has special powers, in effect, like an Old Testament priest, to offer up a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. Yes. And not only that, but this is what happens. I was an altar boy. I watched this for years without understanding what was going on. Now I understand. What happens is transubstantiation. The bread actually becomes the body of Christ. The wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. It still tastes like bread. It still tastes like wine. But it really, truly is, they believe, the body and blood of Christ. And at a key moment, the priest lifts the bo both of them up to God, and I, as the altar boy, had to ring this bell at that key moment. Well, what is going on there? Well, he's offering Jesus back up to God. That is exactly what's going on. He's offering Jesus. I don't know what the bell's for. Actually, the bell, as I remember, no joke, I think the bell occurs at the time of transubstantiation, and it occurs at the time of the offering. We rang the bell twice, and as I remember, looking back at the Mass, you ring the bell when the transubstantiation occurs, and you ring the bell when the uh, sacrifice is offered. Ring, ring, ring. So that the people down there know that it's happened. So that's what they reestablished. And my feeling is, can you believe that and be a Christian? I don't know. I, I think it's false doctrine. I think it's false teaching. You know, and, and many Protestants in England and other places would rather die than receive the Mass. Literally, would rather die than receive the Mass because they consider it false teaching. Okay, so there's the Mass. And then tradition was established as equal authority to Scripture. The correct interpretation of Scripture was the private reserve of the Catholic Church. They told you what the Bible meant. And if you disagreed, you were being rebellious. Sounds like a cult to me. Um, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Basically, you do what I say in reference to Scripture. And if you disagree, then you're not a believer or you're out, etc. To me, I think instead a teacher needs to make his case. And then if it carries the day, it carries the day. But there's no enforcement. It's just a matter of making your case. But in the Catholic hierarchy, they had the only true interpretation on passages. And if you did not accept their interpretation, you were not Catholic. You were excommunicated. All right, so that was the Council of Trent. They just basically got tough, is what they did. 
that this is Catholicism, and if you don't like it, that's just the way that is. And it stayed that way right up through Vatican II. That Vatican II changed some things in reference to the vernacular and some other things, significant changes. But to some degree, I think Council of Trent is still on the books. That's what it means to be a Catholic. All right. Second response were the Jesuits. Have you ever heard of the Jesuits, Society of Jesus? The Jesuits were an amazing, incredible group of people. They really were. Started by Ignatius of Loyola. He basically trained them like, a, like rangers or green berets to go do incredible things in service to the Catholic Church. Did you ever see the movie Mission? With Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons? They're, they were Jesuits. Those guys were tough, I'm telling you. And they accomplished incredible things, spreading Roman Catholicism all over the world. They went to South, a- South America. They went to Africa. They went to Japan and China. Uh, St. Francis Xavier was in Japan. Uh, Matteo Ricci was in China. And they courageously, and they invented new ways of missions. They, some of their, the most advanced thinking in missions in terms of the relationship between the local culture and language and how to do missions to people, they developed that kind of stuff. They were mostly known for education. They established universities and seminaries all over Europe and in America and England, too. Queen Elizabeth ran them out of England. I think it was 1585 or maybe even earlier than that. She signed a law and basically the Jesuits were thrown out. The Jesuits were, in effect, the apostles of the Counter-Reformation. They took the Council of Trent and they just went and preached it vigorously everywhere they went. And that didn't play too well in England um, or in some other places. They were, to some Protestants, they were like devils incarnate with the Jesuits. They absolutely hated the Jesuits. And in the fights that went on in Europe, in the continental Europe between Protestants and Catholics, and also in the colonies, you're talking about, you know, expansion, the voyages that people were sailing and all that. You get there and you find that the Jesuits are there and you're ready to fight. I mean, that's, that's what it was. It was a fighting age. But the Jesuits were a strong arm or a strong wing of the Catholic Church. It'd be interesting for you to watch um, a mission and understand who the Jesuits were. Ignatius of Loyola was, in effect, a mystic and also a bureaucrat. A mystic bureaucrat, a mystical bureaucrat. I don't know how that works, but he was amazing. He was a Spanish mystic. He had an incredible life. Uh, in, very, very well organized. Great organizer and teacher. And uh, the Jesuits exist even to this day. So that was uh, some of their response. And then there's the Inquisition. Originally started in Spain, uh, but it spread to Italy uh, to counter uh, the Reformation. Basically, Italian... Lutherans were thrown out of the country or incarcerated or perhaps even tortured uh, for their faith. So those are the three responses. Now, I'm going to move more quickly through this uh, other stuff. Basically, what happened over the next hundred years is that Protestants and Catholics fought each other militarily. I mean, they basically, if you can imagine Europe not as a bunch of nations, but as a bunch of small regions with ruler princes. Remember that whole mosaic of Christendom where you have local leaders, etc.? Basically, what would happen is a leader would be Protestant or Catholic. And if his region, if he was Protestant, then his region was Protestant. And if he was Catholic, his region was Catholic. And if you didn't like it, you were free to leave that area and go to a Protestant area. And they did. So these areas became purely Protestant or purely Catholic for the most part. And then they started to organize themselves into alliances, and there were wars. The small, small Cal wars, uh, 1530s and 40s, which the Catholics won. But then eventually there was a, a peace there and by the way, Second Diet of Spire in 1529, um, Charles V had had agreed to give Germans freedom to be to be Lutherans. Basically, you could be a Lutheran. Then he revoked it in 1529, the Second Diet of Spire. 
the the uh, Lutheran princes signed a formal protest against this, and so were called from then on Protestants. That's where it came from, 1529, Second Diet of Spire. So they protested to what was done by Charles V. So if you call yourself a Protestant, that's where the title comes from. At any rate, the, the wars were terrible. The Thirty Years' War, which happened at the beginning of the 17th century, 1609 to about 1638 or 39, terrible carnage, terrible death. Uh, it was actually, military historians say it was the worst fighting in Europe until World War I. Um, it was really a terrible, terrible time. And at the end of that, people kind of got sick of it, uh, obviously. Um, and the Peace of Augsburg, I'm sorry, the Peace of Westphalia in 1649 ended, 1648 ended it. Uh, and really from then on, I think that's where you start getting the rise of denominationalism. They weren't going to fight anymore about these things. And so that in, automatically stripped the power of the state away from the power of the individual to choose. You could be Catholic, Protestant, Calvinist, you know, Anabaptist, whatever you wanted to be, and the state was not going to make you fight anymore. All right, that was about in the 17th century. Okay, Now, we know from the origins of the, the pilgrims and all that that persecution was still going on in England much of the 17th century. But it was right in the 17th century that denominationalism started rising and the state just got out of the religion business because of all these wars. Now, Theological developments, um, Catholic Orthodoxy, we've talked about, Council of Trent enforced by the Jesuits, Lutheran Orthodoxy, you had Philip Melanchthon's Confession of Augsburg and Lutheran Scholasticism. Basically, these Lutheran scholastics got together and just organized Lutheran doctrine. And it's called scholasticism because they're very careful in their system, in their organization, their doctrine. And that's going to be the, the ground uh, out of which German pietism rises up saying, but this is dry, boring doctrine all the time. Isn't there any life? Isn't there any walking with Jesus here? And so pietism kind of came up out of that. And then there was uh, Reformed Orthodoxy, two things. Synod of Dort, where you get the five points of Calvinism we talked last time. And then the Westminster Confession in 1647. We'll talk about that when we get to the Puritans. All right, so rise of denominationalism. You have options. You have choices. You can be Protestant be Catholic, be Anabaptist, or you could be nothing. You could, you could not believe. You could be a, you could be a pagan. You could be an unbeliever. And that's about, you, you understand the political context now for the next topic we're going into, which is the rise of unbelief and atheism and liberalism. Something which could not have occurred when the Catholics were controlling tightly everything. To say the kinds of things these philosophers were saying, you could never have gotten away with it. But after the 30 years war and all the suffering and the death, Basically, anything went at that point. And that's when we have the rise of unbelief and liberalism. Let's talk about the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was an age of... What do you think of when you think of the word enlightenment? Renewal of knowledge, similar perhaps to the Renaissance. Yeah, there were two wings to the Enlightenment. One was scientific and one of them was philosophical or religious. And they did, in, in fact, affect one another. All right. I think the Enlightenment is one of the most devastating times in the history of the church. I think we're still dealing with the effects of it. We're seeing it huge in America today. What we call postmodernism, the idea of truth for me, truth for you, right out of the Enlightenment. We're going to see that uh, in terms of the philosophers we're looking at. Uh, Immanuel Kant and all these guys, same thing. Basic idea is you can't know truth, absolutely. You can only know it as it seems to you. That's the basic germ of thought that comes out of the Enlightenment. And they all said it in different ways. Immanuel Kant said it more brilliantly than anyone. 
But if you want to dis- distill it down to one thing, it's basically you can't know truth. You can't. You can only know it as it seems to you and as you categorize it in your mind. All right, well, let's talk first about the scientific achievements. First, there was Nicholas Copernicus. Copernicus uh, was a Polish astronomer. And uh, does anyone know what he did? What's he known for? Before Copernicus, everyone thought that what was the center of the universe? The Earth. That's right. That, that, came out, that came out of Aristotle. Aristotle believed that the Earth was the center and there were a bunch of concentric circles and all the planets revolved around the Earth. The problem was that as you observed the planets moving, sometimes they moved backwards. And that didn't work, did it? All right? You're watching planets. They're just moving right across the sky at, you know, day by day. I mean, that's what they, people did. They didn't have MTV back then. They watched the sky at night. All right? So all right, there's Jupiter coming across. And uh-oh, it's gone retrograde. It's gone backwards. How do you explain that? There were problems. All right? And so uh, Ptolemy... Uh, who came number hundreds of years later, basically said uh, he, he had a more advanced system in which the Earth was still the center but off a little bit and that the planets as they went around the Earth also revolved in a little circle around themselves, not just on their own axis, but they were kind of going around in a circle as they went around. Well, that explained the retro action, but then there started to be other problems, lots of them. And as they started to look at it, they said, we just don't have a good model for what's going on in the skies until Copernicus came up. Now, what Copernicus said is that, and this is shocking, that the Earth is not the center of the universe. Frankly, the sun would be a better way to look at the center. The sun is the center of the solar system. All right. The Earth revolves around the sun, and not only that, but the Earth revolves around its own axis. And that's where we get 24-hour days, and that's where we get 365-day years. Is that, is that shocking to you? I mean, is that stunning? But he could have been burned as a heretic at that time. And as a matter of fact, he wrote all these things out and sat on them till the year he died. And as he was like heading toward death and he knew it, he had it published. Then he died and then boom. So, uh, you know, can't get me now. So that's basically what happened. He published it in the year 1543, the year of his death. Well, along comes Galileo Galilei. He was Italian uh, natural philosopher. Ever heard of him? What did he do? Telescope. Say, yeah, that's a good answer. I thought you were going to give me the Leaning Tower of Pisa and the, and the you know, things drop down from the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yeah, he, was, uh, he did two very significant things for our study tonight. He did a lot of amazing things, but two significant things. One is that he really developed the telescope. I don't think he invented it, but he really, I mean, he developed the telescope. And in his observations, he confirmed and, in effect, proved Copernicus right. All right? That's one thing. And he was attacked by the Inquisition as a result. Definitely. Okay, the second thing he did, and perhaps even more significant, is he developed the scientific method. And the scientific method involved empirical observations, cataloging of data, making of theories, and testing them by experimentation. He invented that. That's what he came up with. And the basic philosophy behind it is that the universe is made up of physical things that relate to each other, that move around, and that can be reduced almost to mathematical formulas. Wow, that's huge. I mean, it's a big change. And that gave rise to the age of scientific advancement. The full flowering of it, perhaps the best we would see, would be in Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton just picked up on this methodology and he just developed it to an amazing extent. Maybe one of the most incredibly gifted intellectual people ever lived. Genius. I mean, you can trace, I think, four or five major sciences back to Newton. 
optics, calculus, mechanics and physics, gravitation, cosmological physics, all that part of the same thing. I mean, the guy was amazing. Uh, he, he was remarkable. There was, there was one story about Isaac Newton. There was a, a, a very complex mathematical problem that had been posed by Leibniz, a guy uh, in Germany, that nobody had been able to solve. And Isaac Newton got a print, out, print of the thing, you know, a, a pamphlet, it was in a pamphlet form, and solved it in about an hour before he went to bed. And he, he wrote out his, his solution and mailed it anonymously to the continent. And by this time, people started to know who Newton was, and they knew immediately, they got it to Leibniz, and he knew right away it was Newton. He solved the thing in about an hour. Incredible genius. Invented calculus. I mean, didn't just understand calculus. Invented calculus, okay? So that's Newton. But Newton, um, Newton was the full flowering of this methodology, this idea that the universe is made up of things that can be studied and categorized. And we're still living with that, aren't we? And we still see it. And it's true to a large degree. I mean, obviously, the scientific method does prove out to be accurate um, because that's the way God is. It's the way that God has um, invented things. He, he wrote, Newton wrote in 1687, the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. And some people say it's one of the most important single works in the history of modern science. As a matter of fact, I remember reading one of these books that uh, lists the top 500 people of all time in history. And number one, as I remember, number one was Muhammad in this particular book. Number two was Isaac Newton. Number three, Jesus Christ. Now, the funny thing about that is that Isaac Newton was a Christian. He wrote a commentary in the book of Revelation, for example. Fascinating reading. Um, what would he think about being put ahead of Jesus Christ in terms of significance in history? But there's the whole scientific wing of the Enlightenment. There's a sense that the mind, the human reason, can do anything. If we can just figure it out, if we can study it, we can do anything. All right? Well, now we get into human philosophy. Okay, that'd be fine if it were just science, but we're going to actually bring that whole concept into the realm of metaphysics, or what we would call religion. Now, I love science. I think science is great. I think we should use science to worship God. I really think so. I think we should probe the depths of the universe, understand it, and praise God for it. But now we're getting into philosophy. And God has a special kind of understanding about philosophy in the New Testament. Beware. Beware. All right? It's dangerous. Now, from the very start, Tertullian asked this question. What does, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What does he mean when he asks, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Yeah, Athens represents Greek philosophy. Jerusalem represents religion. It says, what does human wisdom have to do with what's going on in Jerusalem, with Revelation and all that? Well, that's an interesting question. There's been a, an amazing kind of dance between human philosophy and biblical religion throughout church history. That'd be worth a whole study on its own. But now we're starting to get enlightenment philosophy. And that's a whole different thing. Up to that point, you have, you know, uh, Augustine using Neoplatonist methods, etc., and Aristotle in Thomas Aquinas, etc. But now we've got a whole different thing, and we'll talk about what, what happened. First is René Descartes. René Descartes, 1596-1650, to was called the father of modern philosophy. He's an interesting guy in that he was very religious. All right, now, if he's French religious, what does that make him? Catholic, of course. All right, so he was definitely a Catholic, but very religious. He opposed the prevailing uh, scholastic Aristotelianism. He opposed that. Uh, he applied radical skepticism to every form of truth 
gained by authority, senses, and reason. In other words, he said, I'm not going to trust or believe anything at all that comes to me. Nothing. I'm going to doubt everything until I have something I can start with and then build a system of philosophy from that. And what did he come up with? The, the, the base ground where he could start and everything came from that. You know what it was? Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. That's where he started with. Well, I'm thinking, so I must exist. So what is the center of his universe? Himself. Talk about Copernicus. Okay, we finally get the sun where it belongs, and guess what happens? God gets taken out of the center and man gets put there. All right? It's, it's really remarkable how science set one thing right, but then got the other thing, the more significant thing, wrong. So he starts with himself. I'm thinking, so therefore I must exist. He went from there to prove the existence of God. The whole thing's backwards. And it really is a symbol of what philosophy did to religion. We start with me. I exist. I think. I feel. And from there, I'm going to learn about the world around me. That's how it works. All right? Well, how different is Scripture which says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own what? Understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. That's what Scripture says. Humble yourself. And don't be in love with your own wisdom, your own reason, your own rational capabilities. As a matter of fact, distrust them and come. And let me instruct you. Obviously, he's going to instruct by rational processes. Logic, language, etc. We're not checking our minds at the door. But what he's saying is, don't lean on your own understanding. Well, Descartes said, basically, I'm going to prove everything by myself. And that's what he did. No truth was absolute. Everything had to be proven or rejected. Along after him came John Locke and what we call empiricism. John Locke was English. He based his system on empiricism, which is a Greek word meaning experience experience. John Locke taught that you can know truth by your own private or personal experience. Okay? He wrote in 1690 an essay on human understanding. He taught that all knowledge is based on experience. Matters of faith are separate from religion and could only be known by revelation. In other words, matters of faith are less certain than anything else because we can't experience them the same way we can experience physical things. Right? And so they're at a lower level of certainty. That's all he was willing to say, because he also was a believer, supposedly. And it's amazing how these friends of, of faith come along and do damage. Yes? Depends what you mean by believer. He was actually the father, father of English deism. We're going to talk about deism in a minute. But um, basically, what did he believe? That's my question. Um, but his statements were that he believed in the existence of God, a creator, and of Jesus Christ the Messiah, and that you needed personal faith in the Messiah. That's what he said. But along with it comes these doubts, these radical doubts about what you can really know. Um, in his book, The Reasonableness of Christianity, in effect, he argued that Christianity is the most reasonable of all the religions, but that it actually teaches us nothing that we couldn't have figured out other ways. This is totally backward from what Paul says in Corinthians, in which he says that you can't know by human reason. It, through the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. It has to be told to us. It has to be revealed to us. In effect, he's saying Christianity is a reasonable thing. You can figure out anything that Christianity says. So, that reasons doesn't know. And he's responding to this. 
See, the, uh, Pascal is, is in dialogue with these people and he's refuting that. No, I mean, we can't reason these things out in the same way. David Hume came along. I'm not going to talk much about him, but he destroyed empiricism and the basis for deism and said, uh, basically, we can't know anything uh, in an absolute sense. But then Kant said, probably clearer than anybody that very thing. Immanuel Kant, 1724 to 1804, was a German philosopher. Um, he wrote a book. He combined Descartes, this idea of, you know, I think, therefore I am, and all that empiricism, put them together in something called a critique of pure reason. In effect, this is what he says. He attacks the idea that metaphysical knowledge is knowable. And what is metaphysical knowledge? Well, things you can't touch with or experience with your senses. What would that include? God, Jesus Christ, heaven, hell, judgment day, the Holy Spirit, miracles, all of these things. It is impossible to know them. So as my teacher said, I've never forgotten it since. Immanuel Kant said, in effect, you can't know anything. So. <laughs> you can't know reality as it really is, only as it appears to you. Okay? Well, he's a genius. He was really sharp. He destroyed, for example, Anselm's proof of the existence of God and some of these other things. And he just he was very, very he was a heavyweight. He was an intellectual heavyweight. And frankly, he affected everything in Germany after that. All the liberalism that I'm about to discuss, we can all say thank you to Kant for it. And German liberalism is the roots of American liberalism. So we're just tracing it all back to Kant. But Kant got it from Hume and from Descartes. It's just this Enlightenment philosophy. It's human philosophy coming in, doubting everything. And, you know, it's amazing as you look at the New Testament. You know, doubt is the very thing that Jesus attacked all the time. Unbelief, lack of faith, lack of trusting in God. You have little faith all the time. And this is exactly the attack of Satan through the Enlightenment, human philosophy. All right, now, what is deism? Well, deism came out of John Locke's reasonable Christianity. The basic idea of deism is of a God who creates a universe by certain physical laws. Remember Galileo and all that? Physical laws, and then just leaves it alone. He does not interfere. Well, what does that rule out? What would you call God interfering with physical laws? Miracles. So miracles are out. How about the incarnation? Out. I mean, anything miraculous or supernatural? Out. Deism was a reasonable Christianity. It made sense. And it made sense to the founding fathers of our nation. For example, Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And a lot of these guys were deists. Have you ever heard of Thomas Jefferson's Bible? Basically, he went through the New Testament and pitched anything supernatural. And he was left with a relatively short book. It's a real quick read. I was actually at Monticello, I think it was, or whatever the name of his home was, and, and you can buy it. I, I wish I had you know, picked it up, but he basically got it down to a bunch of moral precepts, you know, love your neighbors yourself and that kind of thing, but no miracles. Reasonable Christianity. Along with deism was atheism, and the best example of that is Voltaire. Voltaire was a pen name for a French guy. I forgot to type out his name, and I don't remember what it is, but most people know him as Voltaire. And Voltaire used satire and wit to attack the excesses of the Roman Church, Roman Catholic Church in France. Ultimately, he was an open despiser of all religion. He predicted that Christianity would become obsolete within 100 years. He thought Christianity was on its way out. Well, he was wrong. And you all have heard me told, tell a story about his house, haven't you? Voltaire's house was fascinating. He said that within one generation, no Frenchman would be reading the Bible. 
And after he died, the Bible Society of France bought his house and used it to publish French Bibles <laughs> under the sovereign hand of an interfering God, in my humble opinion. Uh, God, actually, I think he delights in overturning this kind of unbelief, you know. But uh, that, that house was used mightily. I mean, French Bibles were just published in huge numbers from Voltaire's home. Now let's get to liberalism. And I think this may be one of the most important things we look at tonight. Because I see the roots of American liberalism in the, in the three men that we're going to look at. This is almost a rogues gallery, in my opinion. These people are false teachers. Let's, let's, not, you know, let's not beat around the bush. These people are false teachers. And what does the scripture say about false teachers? Has, huh, beware. Beware of them, and it gives them the most serious warning. 2 Peter 2. If you look up in 2 Peter 2 and you see what Peter says is waiting for a false teacher, then these people should have been a little more careful. The first is Friedrich Schleiermacher. Very interesting about Schleiermacher. Do you know what Schleiermacher means? Well, I didn't know until I looked it up. But Schleier in um, German is veil. And Macher is maker. So he was veil maker. He basically put a veil over Christianity so that we wouldn't look at it too carefully. Uh, you put a veil over things you don't want people to see. Well, Kant comes along and kind of makes Christianity almost an embarrassment. I mean, who's going to really believe in Christianity after Kant got done with it, right? I mean, if you're anybody and you wanted to be respected at upscale parties, you certainly weren't going to be talking about miracles and anything like that. You know, Kant had dealt with that. And if you don't understand Kant, it's like the emperor's new clothes. Well, I tried to read it, don't understand it. You don't understand Kant? What's the matter with you? There's a certain pride involved and nobody wants to admit it. And so they embrace Kant and they reject Christianity. Well, Schleiermacher said, hey, come on now, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's still something good about Christianity. Well, what would that be? Well, we certainly know it can't be the absolute truth of Christianity. Truth, therefore, I mean, Christianity could not be a system of truths. We're not looking for that from Christianity. Um, Christianity would not necessarily be either a moral system, a system of mor morals. Instead, Christianity would be a feeling passions, something it would move inside you. Religion is not a system of truth or a system of morals, but it's truly a feeling, something that makes you feel something. He wrote this in, in uh, a book called On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. He's trying to win cultured, kind of upscale people back to Christianity and say, okay, all right, we know there's no truth to Christianity, and we know that there's no you know, true morals to Christianity either, but it does something. It makes us feel something when we read these stories, and there's something to that, isn't there? Well, that's Schleiermacher. He really was the father of modern liberalism. Um, very, very damaging person. Next is Albrecht Rischel. Now, the interesting thing is all these guys are German. <laughs> I mean, one after the other. They're all wrestling, and there are colleges that were set up, and you know, Tubingen and some of these other schools, and they're just developing bad theology, and they're trying to come up with the next generation's paradigm or way of teaching Christianity. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And so they're coming up with whole new things that rocked the whole establishment. I remember my systematic theology professor said, I am not trying to rock you. I'm trying to establish and ground you. But the Germans were trying to rock, the, you know, just so that from then on everybody saw it differently, just like with Kant. They're trying to relive Kant again. Ah, we'll get to the Jesus Seminar. I didn't mention it in here, but yes, Rischel, what does he say? Well, he sought to deal with Kant's critiques by placing Christianity in a sphere distinct from pure reason. Okay, it has nothing to do with pure reason. But he felt that Schleiermacher's feeling thing was a little vague. 
a little subjective. Does it strike you as vague and subjective? Well, it does me as well. So Rischel was right about that, at least. Um, for Rischel, Christianity was neither a matter of reason nor of feeling, but of practical, everyday life. We need something to ha help us live our lives, don't we? We need something to help us in our marriages. We need something to help us when our cars break down. I'm sorry, they didn't have cars back then. We need something to help us economically. We need something to help us if we're sick, right? So Christianity was given for practical, everyday, common life. The center of Rischel's theology, therefore, was the event of Jesus. That's what he called it. The event of Jesus. And focused specifically on the teaching of the kingdom of God. And he defined the kingdom of God as the organization of humanity through action based on love. Rischel, therefore, became a great influence to Walter Rauschenbusch, who invented the social gospel. Have you ever heard of the social gospel? Christianity is basically helping the poor, you know, the needy, works, yeah, doing what you could for the... And there are strong themes in the Bible about this. But that's all Christianity was in the social gospel. There's no salvation or anything like that. None needed. Yeah. Well, you got me, and frankly, a lot of people aren't persuaded and they don't believe. And so how does Europe look right now, spiritually? Terrible. I mean, th this is the effect of false doctrine. I've told you time and again there are three great attacks from Satan on the church. False doctrine, worldliness, persecution. False doctrine is the worst of the three, by far. It lays waste to the church. Social gospel, you know, it's, it's really, really true. Uh, and so we've got the social gospel. We also have the beginning with Rischel of the quest for the historical Jesus. Okay? We need to find him. Okay? Well, where do you look to find the historical Jesus? Well, yeah, but of course that's an unreliable record. We don't know a thing about Jesus from the Bible, so we're going to find by other means. Albert Schweitzer was one of the number one questers for the historical Jesus. And what, someone once said that the Germans who are looking for the historical Jesus were looking down through a well, deep, deep, deep well through history, and at the bottom there was a pool of water, and in that they saw reflected back their own face. In other words, as they looked for the historical Jesus, they found themselves. They were looking for, in effect, what they liked and what they honored and valued. And that's who Jesus was. All right. Well, once you lose the Scripture, folks, that's what you're left with. That's why I am so strong on some of the issues that have gone on in the Southern Baptist denomination. Because I've read all this stuff. I've seen where this leads. And once you start separating Jesus from the Bible and, and all that kind of thing, it's not long before you're on this slippery slope to this kind of stuff. And you've got nothing left. But if, on the other hand, you have an inspired, authoritative record of the life of Jesus, we don't need to quest for the historical Jesus anymore. Well, one, one of the things I neglected to tell you about Schleiermacher is there were two great influences in his life. One was um, Moravians, the Moravians and the Pietists, and the Moravians went bad theologically eventually, sadly. All right? But the Moravians, who, who had this kind of warm piety and love for Jesus and all that, and then you've got Immanuel Kant, who he just about worshipped, so that devastated the, the, the theological intellectual side. So what's he left with? Passions, feelings, that's what Christianity is. So that's where it went. It went bad. You've got to have the doctrine. You know, we can say, yeah, let's not have dry, dusty doctrine. We want to have genuine, warm, strong feelings about Jesus. Yeah, but if you don't have the doctrine, before long you end up with Schleiermacher. You know, warm feelings and passions, but no truth. And so what, do we, what is there to feel warm about, frankly, if you don't have any truths? To, I feel warm and, and gushy when I realize that Jesus died on the cross in my place. That makes me feel something because I know it's true. Anyway, so that's racial. And so we get out of him, we get K. 
kingdom of God, we've got the social gospel, we've got the quest for historical Jesus. And then Adolf von Harnack. And what did he say? This may sound familiar, but this is like the Jesus seminar. Harnack, Harnack was a German historian. And what he said was, in effect, um, Jesus, we went, the church went over history to moving away from the teachings of Jesus to teaching about Jesus. Jesus came as a great teacher and taught things. What did he teach? Fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, love one another, do God's commandments. That's what Jesus taught. That's liberalism. That's pure and simple. That is what they taught. That's what Harnack said. That's what Jesus taught. How does he know that? I have no way of knowing how he knows what Jesus taught because he rejected the New Testament. All right, but this is what Jesus taught. Fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man. All right, love one another, do the commandments, care for people, that kind of thing. All right, and then the church devolved from there to teaching about Jesus as God, that he is deity, that you need to believe in him and that he did all these miracles and stuff, which we know is just mythology. Okay, that's what Harnock taught. This is just false teaching. It's unbelief is what it is. And it's, it's the spirit of Antichrist. You look at Second, Second John 7, it says, uh, who is the Antichrist? The one that denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. That's the spirit of Antichrist. It's the theological Antichrist, which I talked about this past Sunday. All right, revival, revival movements in one, one minute or less. Um, we've got a few. German pietism, Spener and Franck. They were German mystics. Spener wrote Pia Desideria, Pious Desires in which he talked about a uh, let's get away from that dry Lutheranism, away from dry doctrines. All right, He did not re- reject doctrine, but said we need to feel it in our hearts. It has to transform us. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, Let's have a genuine living faith in Christ. Amen. These the pietists were great people early on. They did not reject the scriptures. They did not. They brought doctrine together, but they wanted to live it. And they felt that you needed a transformation. You must be born again. There needed to be a change in your heart, in your life. Out of them came the Moravians. Now, you've heard me talk about the Moravians. Just come to the love feast. I'll say some more things about Moravians. I love to talk about the Moravians. I really do. Uh, The Moravians are some of my favorite people in church history. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf uh, was a uh, German nobleman, wealthy man, saw a portrait of Jesus hanging on the cross. At the bottom of it, it said, All this... I did for you. What are you doing for me? That's what it said. So he was so convicted that he said, I need to do something. I'm wasting my life. So he opened up his estate to refugees and he taught them pietism, German pietism. There was a community of faith. The Moravians came and the Holy Spirit poured out of them in an amazing way. Started a revival. Lasted for 100 years. They began to pray 24 hours a day for 100 years. Unbroken prayer revival for 100 years. That is a church record that will never get broken. Cal Ripken doesn't have anything on these people. I'm telling you right now. hundred. And what is that? That's a measurement of the strength of the community. You see what I'm saying? It's not one person committing to do something. It's a group of people that are committed to prayer. Unbroken, 100-year, 24-hour-a-day prayer. And you know what they're praying for? World evangelization. They're praying for missions. Missionaries to the West Indies. Missionaries to Africa. Missionaries came first from the Moravians. That's the start of it all. And I've told that story before and we won't tell it again tonight, but basically they were the first Protestant missionaries. They had a passion for world evangelization. Also, we have English Methodism. And there's a strong relationship between the two. All right? English Method- Methodism started, the, the word Methodist was an insult basically in England. The Oxford, they were called the Holy Club. And they reduced Christianity to the methods. 
You have to have a quiet time. You have to read the Bible. You have to do good works. You have to... And they were, they were the have-tos. I think they understood justification, but they were serious about their Christian life. And so they were called Methodists. They reduced Christianity to a method. All right? Well, they went through the, uh, their, their experiences, but Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, did not feel that they were converted. Interesting story about this. Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, went to their brothers. They went uh, to Georgia to do mission work. All right? It was a miserable failure. Had a terrible time. They're on the ship back to uh, America, and there's a storm. And they're in the middle of a storm, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, they, they really think that they're going to die. And there's a group of Moravians on board. Wesley is beside himself with terror. The Moravians are sitting on deck singing and worshiping God, ready to die. No problems. And that's when he realized, by contrast, that he was not a believer, that he did not have genuine faith, though he believed. He just he thought for all of his methods... He did not have a personal relationship with Christ. That's that pietism coming out. And it's going to find its way through into American revivalism. Because uh, the Wesleyan Methodism came over the, came across the ocean. And it affected American Christianity too. And that's we still have it. We have Just As I Am. We have Revival. All that kind of thing. We'll talk about that. But that, that pietism, that yearning for a personal walk with Jesus Christ. But the greatest of all the Methodists, in my opinion, was George Whitfield. We'll talk about Whitfield. He's going to be one of my hero people. We'll get to him. I'm not going to say much about him, but crossed the Atlantic Ocean 13 times in a sailing vessel to preach the gospel. 13 times. You know, how long was a voyage? A month or two? Risking your life every time. 13 times. Unbelievable man. Um, and revivalism. We're getting, we'll talk about that uh, next time when we talk about America. And then theological uh, revivalism. The final thing is the anti-slavery crusade. We'll finish with that. Um, Basically, William Wilberforce, strongly affected by the Methodists, strongly affected by Wesley, uh, he and a group of people began praying against the slave trade. There weren't a ton of slaves in England, but they were involved in the slave trade. And it was as a result, social impact of the revival of Methodism, that slavery was eradicated from England and from all of its colonies. Um, tremendous impact uh, uh, as a result of their uh, work. So the final man that we're going to talk about tonight is William Carey. The birth and growth of modern missions. We already touched the Moravians. William Carey, um, 1792, wrote, and, or 1789, wrote an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. That's a long book title. That's what it was. He said, basically, we should look into whether we should sail across the ocean and lead heathens, pagans, to Christ. He was a Calvinist, strongly involved. I'm, ne I'm never going to fail to say these things. Some of the greatest evangelists in history have, ha have believed in the doctrines of grace. And William Carey was one of them. And he believed that we need to get on boats and sail places and preach the gospel. And he did. He sailed to India and he spent the rest of his life there. Tremendous father of modern uh, missions. That's all I have time for. So we got through it, kind of. Any questions? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.